You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Today's episode is brought to you by the best Valentine's Day gift ever. Of course, I'm talking about IHateStevenSinger.com. Now you will not hate Steven Singer, but the other jewelers will because he's making Valentine's Day easy for guys like me and you. You want to give something memorable, something special, something unique that lasts forever? What about a real long stem American Beauty Rose that's been lavishly and deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold? It's going to last forever. And how about this? It starts at just $59. This rose will never wilt. It'll never die. It'll never need water. It's the number one gift that women want, and it even comes with your own personalized love note, all in Steven's signature gift box shipped for free, starting at just $59. You've got to see it for yourself right now at IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers. This is a gift you'll cherish forever at IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Arn with the host with the most the founder of the four horsemen, the hall of famer, the enforcer, double a Arn Anderson. Arn, how are you, man? I'm doing great. It's a new year. It's a new decade, I guess. And, uh, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff going on this year. I'm very excited about our business venture. We got things kicked off in a big way last week. Uh, it was of course. Uh, another fun episode of Arn, and this will be, I guess, tomorrow will be your third appearance on Dynamite. Man, we've uh, we've started the year with a bang. Like, uh, not just our show on Tuesday, but you're on TNT on Wednesday, so that's got to be a pretty fun feeling, huh? Absolutely, and you know, I'm part of the team. Unless you know something bad, like the end of the world happens, or something of that nature. It looks like I have found a new home and I have found that third career I was looking for. And, uh, I tell you what, <clears throat> the, uh, crew they have assembled, there are a lot of familiar faces and a lot of great employees and a lot of good people to be around and every one of them are smiling. So it's, a it's a new era and it's a new challenge for all of us. And we're just excited about, uh, producing a quality product. And I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Arn. He is Cody Rhodes coach on all elite wrestling. It's AEW dynamite every Wednesday night live on TNT. It's pretty cool to see uh, the enforcer back on TV, almost in a Mike Dicker role out there looking as only he can look with that sweater vest and got the shirt and the tie. Uh, he's a coach. I guess I'll start adding that to the intro, but while we're really here today, of course, is hashtag ask Arn anything every other week. That's what we're doing. What's on tap next week. Royal rumble, 2015. What an interesting and polarizing show that will be. If you've got a question, you can ask it easy on Twitter. Just follow us at the Arn show. But in the meantime, let's get to our Q and a this week. Hashtag ask Arn anything. Interesting question here from friend of the show, Mike Eldridge. He writes, had Arn not been forced to retire due to injury, how did he see or want his career in wrestling to pu- to play out in possible storylines? That's an interesting thing to think about, you know, the what ifs, but a lot of guys get the big dramatic send-offs. Of course, your old pal, Ric Flair got quite the send-off at WrestleMania 24. Would you have liked to have had a, a quote unquote retirement match? Maybe put your career on the line in a match. I don't know about that, but Michael uh, opened up a lot of thought process here about what could have been or what if or all that. You know, I don't think I would have necessarily held out for that big retirement match, but I would have held out for maybe working with a lot more guys. You know, I would love to have worked with Stone Cold Steve Austin, not Stunning Steve. I would love to have worked with The Undertaker. I'd love to have worked with Kane. You know, Triple H, I would have liked to have wrestled, you know, in a program. Uh, 
Shawn Michaels at a later date in his career. A lot of guys I would have loved to have had programs with that I felt like I did get shortchanged on. Because if you look at, you know, the state of the business today, you know, 37 is getting up there, but it's not ancient and it's not necessarily a death sentence. And, uh, you know, had it not been for that last injury, I think I had maybe, maybe six, seven years left. It is fun to think about what that would have looked like you in the WWF and a post WCW, lots of new talent over there. And if we were to sort of armchair quarterback it, let's pretend that, you know, you weren't the age that you would have been today. Is there anybody today or that's come along since say maybe Oh three to now that you think, man, we could have tore it up. Oh gosh. I'm sure there's a lot of guys. Um, you know, there's, there's, it seems like there's so much more talent popping up from different places that, that a guy like me that went to work every day of his life for the WWE and kind of had my head in the sand just because I had to, um, you know, I really wasn't able to stay in tune with all the young talent that's out there now. And, uh, it's like when I came to my first AEW show, I went, Jesus Christ, who are all these guys? Where do they all come from? <laughs> I'll never because- forget being in, uh, but we were backstage at Starcast in Chicago and we're watching the, uh, the panels on a monitor. And you looked at me a few times and said, now, who is this? Now, who is that? And it's just cool because you had been so far in WWE immersed in WWE that you had missed a lot of what was happening outside of there. And now, man, you're just in the thick of things with AEW as well. It's, it's weird to see it all come together. Yeah, it is. And you know, the cool part for me was to be sitting there just as a fan, not knowing anything and to see this talent keep coming through the curtain that not only did I not know who they were, they were all sizes. They had all different skill levels, totally different looks. They were all different. And, and a lot of those guys are really, really, really good. And, uh, it was just one pleasant surprise after another, after another, after another. And, uh, wow. As as a wrestling fan, like I'm probably the biggest one that, uh, you'll ever find, you know, I was just sitting there with my jaw on the ground. This is great. Let me ask you, you mentioned something there that I want to circle back to because it's been fairly polarizing, but you said, you know, this great talent's coming through the curtain and they're all different shapes and sizes. And a lot of people zero in some of the old school, maybe uh, more folks who you just know in the wrestling landscape is just historically negative about everything. And they really think it's a knock on AEW or more modern wrestling in specific, you know, so maybe NXT, maybe the independence, maybe ring of honor, but AEW of course is the most high profile and they would say that one of the criticisms would be that some of the talent, well, they're not as big as they were in my day, but I'm curious your perspective on that, because I think you have a unique perspective as somebody who's been there when there were giants and now when there's not. Well, I put it in, in these parentheses. If, uh, if the road warriors would have chose to, they could have looked at Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson and went, those two guys are too small to wrestle us. Right. We should cream them in three minutes. Ole Anderson for about a minute and a half when we were working with the rock and roll express would not go off of his feet because in his mind, he was stuck in that generation that these guys are too small to be knocking me on my ass until he saw him knocking me on my ass and the reaction that it got. And he decided to join in. It was, uh, you know, there's, there's always been that group of old timers that feel like a wrestler should have a look, should be at least a certain height, at least a certain weight and all these things. And there was a time maybe that that, that was true because that was the expectations of the audience. Right. I mean, you know, you know, Conrad, when a wrestler walked in a room 20 years ago, you knew he was a wrestler. Right. Or you at least knew he was somebody or something out of the ordinary. My my opinion is today, after seeing 
Ray Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Chris, Chris Benoit, all these guys that were just some of the other luchadors, some of these guys, nobody cared or measured their height. And once the match started, no one questioned how big they were. And they all got over huge. You got to take that same philosophy and apply it now. Just because you don't know all these guys and they're small, we'll get to know them. Darby Allen, I'm a big fan of that kid because he just has no regard whatsoever for what he puts his body through or what he's willing to go through to get the advantage in a match. And if a smaller guy will tell that story on a bigger guy and it's plausible and it's believable and it's credible, why not believe it? He's throwing his whole body out there from the top rope to knock you down. For me, that's very believable, and he doesn't have to be 6'3", 265 to do it. One of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about the Ole Anderson story is a great quote I heard from Bruce Pritchard a long time ago when I forget the context of the conversation, but the gist was I said something like, oh, they'll never believe that, and he immediately quipped, they'll believe it when they see it. And I just thought, man, that really puts the onus on the performer to make it look good and make it believable. And then they'll believe it. So there is a suspension of disbelief, but you know, that exists with a lot of different things in wrestling that we've given a pass to. So some people who say, oh, that's not believable. Well, can the undertaker really summon lightning, you know, at the same time, you know, this is the evolution of the business. And of course I wasn't around back then, but I hear that there were old timers who were very critical of like the classics that flair and steamboat put on thinking, well, this isn't wrestling. This is too fast and they need to slow down. And I just think everything, whether it's the NFL or the NBA or professional wrestling evolves. And you know, some of that you can see influences, but maybe they don't even mean it to be that way, but a very smart wrestling person that you and I both know compare Darby Allen recently to me to Jeff Hardy. And it was like a light bulb moment. Like, wow, I didn't really think about that. He could be AEW's Jeff Hardy. And I think you just got to go into it with an open mind and have a little patience and, and a hope that it's good. And if it's good, it's going to get over. Absolutely. And doubling back a little bit. Yes. Undertaker can summon it anytime he wants. <laughs> And if you want to argue about it, you tell him. Yeah, no, I'm, I don't think he's taking my calls, but we'll move on. Uh, Michael Eldridge also has another great question that we've never talked about on this show before. I don't think, and I can't believe we've made it this far and we didn't. What are Arn's thoughts on working with Vince Russo in WCW Russo, of course, a lightning rod personality in professional wrestling. Uh, but certainly you can't argue his success that he had with Vince McMahon, by the time he gets to WCW, WCW is, uh, well, a bit of a wayward ship and he's asked to write it and it didn't go exactly as everyone hoped. And now he's spent a lot of time being criticized since then you worked with him. What'd you think? Well, you know what I did? And this is just the truth. And I always just tell the truth, no matter how boring or absurd or, or ridiculous it may sound, but. He's one of the guys that I worked for instead of with. When he came in, a lot of guys started going home, the regular guys, the big stars, because there was a creative difference in what they had in mind and what he had in mind. And, uh, you know, their, I would say probably their punishment was their reward. They were sent home with pay. All I did as a as an agent at the time was exactly what he wanted, him and Ed Farrar, because they were writing the show, and from my perspective, they had absolute autonomy. What they said went. If they're sending home all these high-dollar players and there's no issue with that coming from anywhere, then I'm just going to do my job. So – was Vince Russo in some areas very creative? Absolutely. I was also from that same period at that point in time in my career and thought process, thought everything needed to make sense. I was still stuck there. And today, I still believe it at least needs to make sense. 
Now, it shouldn't dumb the product down. It shouldn't be so outlandish that nobody's going to buy it. As long as you know, it can be as creative as you want it to be. But at least at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, have it make sense. And, uh, you know, the fact is there at the end, he was basically all he had to work with was the young talent. A lot of them from the school. A lot of them were rookies, not much time in the business. Um, so to answer the question, I worked for him, what he said he wanted. I did my best to give him. And, and that was the extent of our relationship Let's, uh, to my, to my memory. Keep it moving. We've started up a hornet's nest online. I'm sure you've heard about this. Uh, Alvaro writes, Arn, are you willing to take a blind food taste test between In-N-Out and Whataburger? Betcha. <laughs> We're going to make that happen. And by the way, someone has chimed in and said, what about Shake Shack? I don't know that me and you've talked about this. Maybe we have, and I've already forgotten. Shake Shack trumps them all. Shake Shack is, is they're going to reign supreme for me. Where are you at on Shake Shack? I have not had one. got to make that happen. Now you got to remember, you know, I'm pretty territorial. When we go to Texas, we get our Whataburgers. Sure. Right. When we go to the South, it's Bojangles. When we go to Chicago, no matter what, if you walk through Chicago airport and do not locate and at least get one slice of pizza, then you're a goof. Shake Shack, I haven't gotten, I haven't had, uh, there's also one that, uh, the family screaming about is good stuff. It's called Freddy's. Oh, I hadn't had that. Nor have I, but, uh, they claim it's like, uh, you know, the burgers were steak and shake how at one time, and I think they have fell off a little bit just from personal experience, but when it had the crunchy edges, you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, Absolutely. That was the selling point. And I think that's what Freddy's has got going on right now. Arn got a question for you. This one comes to us from Conrad in Huntsville. You ever wanted to learn to play guitar? Did I want to learn to play guitar? Yeah. No, but you know what I did want to learn to play? What's that? If it was a guitar, what would your second guess be? A ukulele. <sighs> So the crowd could go, Hey, who's the fat guy over there with the bald head playing the ukulele? I just think I could have seen you with those badass old glasses, maybe a little Hawaiian shirt. Dude, that would have got over. Only if you're at the drunk tank in Los Angeles. I would have loved to learn to play the bass, man. How cool is that? Huh. You know, you sit. I'm not mad at it. I just didn't get, I was, I was going little guitar. You're going bigger guitar. You're going bass, but we're on the same page. No, you just cut me off. I didn't get bass out of my mouth pretty good. And you let me have it. You know, you see a lot of great bands, you know, I'm a huge Led Zeppelin fan, but that bass, man, that guy standing out here on the left side, playing that bass is really the one that catches your attention on every, every musical performance. You know, guitar, okay, that's the easy one. You know, Jimi Hendrix, all that stuff. But the bass, sweet. Well, how about we've got an app that works around your schedule and lets you learn at your own pace. This episode is brought to you by Fender Play. Fender Play is the complete online learning platform for guitar, bass, and ukulele. With Fender Play, you can play your first song in just minutes with short, easy-to-follow lessons taught by experienced instructors. What makes it different? Fender Play features a step-by-step song-driven learning path tailored for your music taste, and it's built around your schedule. You can do it all from your phone, your tablet, or even your computer. Now, with the Fender Play membership, you can master chords, songs, and techniques all at your own pace. With bite-sized lessons, you can watch anytime, anywhere. You can even track your progress in the app so you can pick up where you left off. And you can share your success and get support from instructors in Fender's exclusive online community. Get unlimited access to hundreds of lessons and features for an entire year, all for less than the average cost of one traditional music lesson. We have an incredible deal for our listeners right now. New members can try Fender Play for free for two weeks and save 50% off a Fender Play annual plan. 
But the only way to take advantage of this offer is to go to fender.com forward slash podcast. That's fender.com forward slash podcast and use our special promo code at checkout ARN. Now, the only way to do this is to do it right now. This offer is going to expire on Monday, January 20th at midnight Pacific. So act fast right now. Go to fender.com slash podcast. Use our special offer code ARN and you'll try it for free. Save 50% and start learning today. And we thank Fender play for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, Mayhem writes in, can you comment on guys having bad cardio and getting blown up? The horseman cardio was legendary. Did you guys ever intentionally blow guys up as a rib or a test? Neither one, because you know what you ended up with a big tub of shit laying on the mat. that's supposed to be up knocking you on your ass. It's hard to have a match with a blowed up baby face. I mean, you can't make a guy kick your ass. If he's crawling around on his hands and knees wheezing, it's kind of hard to pull that off, I think. And, um, we knew, you know, that, uh, you had to be in shape because we were, our job was to get those baby faces over. And I mean, all of them. And sometimes there was four of them standing on the other apron. And, uh, our job was to get those guys over and your ability to breathe was paramount. So cardio was very important in those days because you had a lot of long matches as well. Good question. Interesting question here from Canadian Travis, something that, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners have maybe been curious about. Have you ever seen Vince McMahon fire someone in real life, the way he's done it on TV? Of course, he's referencing the very exaggerating you're fired. You ever seen that? I don't think he does the firing. Pretty sure he has someone do it. That's underneath him. I would almost bet on it. Um, cash nine Oh four writes in, when did you decide on the enforcer moniker? And what does that mean to you in relation to being a horseman? I'm not sure when I got that tag. And I think it was more like, Rick was making a promo or, or somebody was making a promo or maybe JJ said it or something that we're going to have Arn Anderson do the enforcing. He's going to be there to make sure nobody else gets involved. And it probably started out that way from somebody. Um, it wasn't just your name, the enforcer here. We got this out of a bubblegum machine. This is now your moniker. It evolved, I think, probably logically and probably through a promo, and I don't remember exactly how it happened, but since I was the guy that was coming down there doing the dirty work a lot of times, and that was fine with me, trust me, I could have came down another time or two if that's what the horseman needed or wanted because I, I saw what was starting to gel together and I knew what it could be, I saw where it was going, and the more I'm involved in it, the more we tell our story that it's you jump on one of us, you jump on all of us. And that was the story. And uh, how I got that name, I don't know, but it sure stuck. Big Extra writes in, Arn always loved the runway entrance ramp that WCW used in the late 80s and early 90s. Visually on TV, it looked great and it added a different dimension to the matches. What was it like for a talent to have to work on that ramp? Any injuries or memories? Yeah, it's pretty solid. doesn't give. When you fought up the ramp, you were either going to stay on your feet and fight back into the ring or you somebody was going to get stung pretty good because that ramp was very, very solid. And uh, your body in those days just, you know, was toughened up from wrestling every single day, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday. So, you know, you would get accustomed to taking the occasional bump on the ramp up there. Uh, it was never to a point where you didn't feel it. You definitely felt it, but it, uh, it was just part of, uh, you know, some of those street fight matches and bunkhouse stampede. You wanted to get out there close to the audience and let them feel what was going on. And reason they had to paid to see something different was because something different was going on. And you tried to make sure that the audience received that when they bought a ticket. 
I think Jim Cornette has been critical of the ramp saying that while fans may have loved it, he hated it because it meant that as a manager, he couldn't run around all four sides of the ring. Did that mean you had to maybe plan or map out your match a little differently? Or was that not that difficult from your perspective? No, we would just work to the other three sides that we had available. Um, for Jim, I see, I see what he's talking about. You know, he needs to be mobile. He's all around the place. Uh, he's very visible during a match. I could see where that would impede him. It didn't mess with us so much. And whatever we had in store for JJ, we would just try to work it out where it was on the other three sides of the ring. Andrew Goldstein writes in, was turning the key to the only plan considered after Magnum Shrek? Are you aware of any plan B or plan C that maybe Dusty considered? I wasn't aware of anything. I'm pretty sure that was it. And it was at a time that was probably perfect. He had just really, you know, gotten over and got established and everybody understood what he was. He was a 285 pound killing machine. It was such a shock when Magnum went down, and I mean for everybody, fans, wrestlers, family, friends, you name it. It was one of those things that you never thought would happen. I mean, it went from seeing him one night at a show to the next morning being told he may not make it. Mm. And uh, we were all very close with Jim Crockett Promotions. Um and it's one of those things you never thought a young stud like that, you would hear something that just floored you. And it wasn't, he's hurt, he's hurt bad, and he's going to be in the hospital a while. It was, he may not make it through the night. And uh, they had to do something strong to try to fill that gap. And of all the possible options, that was probably the one no one expected um, and it certainly worked. So I think it was a good call. Whether there, I don't think there were any plan B's or plan C's. That was the decision and, uh, everybody got on board to make it happen. Jay Stovall writes in hypothetically, if Carl Anderson from the, uh, the club came to you and officially wanted to join the Anderson family, would you endorse it? Well, sure. He, he's as much an Anderson as I am. Um, he chose to take that name. Our paths have never crossed. Uh, I talked to C.W. Anderson, who just a short time back, um, Winston-Salem at uh, the big event that they had there. Um, WrestleCade. WrestleCade, yeah. And uh, we talked about that, and he was so genuine and – after all these years, we had had one other conversation, you know, a short one about him being an Anderson, and I probably said something, you know, I think it was positive, but it was probably shorter than the answer that he deserved. And he came to me again and said, hey, you know, I've, I've made a career out of being an Anderson. I hope this has been okay with you. My understanding, and I haven't seen him wrestle, believe it or not, but is that he's a good hand and Absolutely. he's a credit to the Anderson family. And, uh, same thing with Carl. Very good wrestler, you know. Um, the only real Anderson, the only legitimate one that should have a bitch or a gripe is Gene. And if there was anybody to make that call on who was going to be an Anderson following him, he would have been the one to ask. But, you know, it's like um, as long as a person is gifted with such a strong gimmick, and I'm even though I'm one, I'm going to just go ahead and say it. The Anderson family has excelled throughout the history of this business. And if you add to that legacy, excellent. Just don't be one guy that's going to pull the name down, uh, do anything negative to make that Anderson name mean what it is meant, because none of us have that right. We owe it to Gene to make him proud of every Anderson that's came following him. Late to the Nitro party writes in, what's Arn's typical Waffle House order? Three pork chops, three eggs over medium, 
ash brown, scattered and smothered. Large ice water. What is smothered? Onions. Oh, got it. Crunchy and covered with onions. You don't know what smothered is? I don't do that, so I didn't know. You've never ate at Waffle House either. No, no, no. I've eaten at Waffle House. I just don't put onions in them. So I know there's like covered, chunked, topped. You know, I know it's, I mean, I, I know how they even yell it. They're like, uh, scattered on two. Like, I don't know why they do that. They just do that. It's coming to you in two plates, but I'm in the loop on that, but I just get mine playing in the ring. I'm a fuddy duddy. So when people start putting, like, I think Jr. puts fucking gravy on his, and I've never seen that before. And I know some weirdos put chili on theirs. Like I wouldn't want to be in the car with that guy afterwards, but I think it's pretty common to, to put cheese on it and scatter. It's just not my bag. Number one, no cheese. Number two, what makes you think that wasn't me hollering scattered on two? <laughs> well, I don't know what it means, but I'm glad somebody does. By the that way, been, that was me hollering in to make sure they got it right. The, uh, the go-to is the cheesesteak sandwich. And, uh, Charlotte Flair agrees with me. Like that's the go-to, uh, like, like she's had a bunch of those. Oh no. She eats them. Well, she did before. Let's keep going. Uh, Greg Bass writes in, I love the dangerous Alliance as a kid. And you've talked about it before on the show. The question is if Paul Heyman or Arn revived the stable today, what talent would you use in each organization? So let's just pretend AEW for a second. If you were to bring back a dangerous alliance and build a little stable in AEW, what do you think that would look like? Oh God. Uh, number one, I don't think you can recreate that. Um, but we're just doing fantasy booking, right? Sure. Okay. Um, what if you started off with MJF? Ooh. Number one. He could do some of the talking, some of the performing. I think you would have to bring along that monster that he's got who is untested. No one has seen him yet in a match. So he's untested, but he certainly looks the part. Um, What if you put Moxley in there? You brought in, let's just say you brought in the revival if they were available, free and clear. And Luke Harper. Oh, and that, yeah. that would probably button it up and give you everything you needed. That's a bunch of hosses right there. I like it. Uh, Mr. Perfect Fan Canada writes in, what are your memories of your tag title win over the Rock and Roll Express in 87? The ambush by the Midnights prior to the match was super rare for the time and stands as the greatest attack of its kind to this day for me. Were you happy with that creative and who came up with it? I loved the story that was involved because basically we stole it. Right. You know, and in, if you don't want to be that guy that comes in the back door, you know, to me, if you're, if you're a family sitting at a table and the burglar kicks your front door down, comes in, takes his shoes off, walks around till he finds the family sitting there and goes on this four-star diatribe about he's fixing to just clean out the house and all this stuff. Well, that guy turns out to be just some guy that's got balls and is really cool. Instead of coming in the back door during the middle of the night and stealing some jewelry and run like hell, you know, you, you gotta want to be as a heel in this business, the guy that just is rotten to the core because all you're doing is now their audience is going to look on the other side and go, somebody's got to put a stop to this bullshit. Who's it going to be? Who's available? And now you just make them gravitate to all those baby faces. It's hard to have baby faces unless you got bad guys. And uh, that opened the door for us to uh, get those titles and hang on to them and the Rock and Roll Express, like I've said before, were as hot as anybody's ever been in this business. You had to be there and see it live, night after night, market after market. The audience loved those guys. It is remarkable to go back and watch that old footage. And if you're a younger listener and you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. Most of that stuff is on the WWE Network, or at least there's some of it you can check out. Uh, but in the meantime, I got a little secret for you. 
I hate Steven Singer. You heard me. I hate Steven Singer. See, there's this guy in Philly you've been hearing about. Maybe you've been to Philly. You've seen the billboards. Maybe you heard him on the radio. I hate Steven Singer. What does this mean? Well, Steven Singer is the most hated jeweler in America. But why? Because other jewelers can't stand him. Because he is the best Valentine's Day gift ever. And I'm excited to tell you all about it. Steven and Arn are bringing you the best Valentine's Day gift possible. Are you listening? Check this out. Picture this. A real long stem American beauty rose lavishly and deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold. It lasts forever. You heard right. And they started just 59 bucks. His beautiful Valentine's day red rose won't wilt or die. It doesn't even need water. And this is the number one gift that women want something unique, something special and something that lasts forever. They come with your own personalized love note and Steven's signature gift box ship for free starting at just 59 bucks. Go right now to I hate and you'll see what I'm talking about. That's I hate Steven singer jewelers. This is a gift you'll cherish forever. That's I hate and how about it? Aren't a gold rose for 59 bucks for free shipping. It doesn't get any easier than that. And creative. I would have never thought of that in a thousand years. You know, and if you've been, if you've been with your significant other for a while, or if you're a generous person like you are, Conrad, over a 10, 20, 30-year spread, you've pretty much given the missus everything imaginable. I would have never thought about this. It's a excellent keepsake and at a very reasonable price. Since you smartened me up, I'll be getting one very soon myself from my wife. What's cool about it, and I hate to just give you guy talk here, guys, but this doesn't look like a $59 gift. It looks like you could add another zero behind it. You're going to get some brownie points with the misses and it doesn't get any easier than this gift box with free shipping. It's a no brainer. Put Valentine's day on autopilot. Go to, I hate and get her one of these gold roses. You'll be glad you did. Uh, Greg Bass has a fun question. I know you'll have fun with this. Just how big are Lex Luger's teeth? Well, I used to tell him I was going to knock a couple of them chompers out and make some pearl handle pistols out of them. <laughs> if you want to envision that for just a second. That's awesome. And then I used to call him a, you know, orthodontist dream and just all those cheap shots yeah, that heard, you could get away with. I heard once you picked up a toilet brush and said, Hey Lex, I found your toothbrush. Yeah. Put this in your back pocket. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Lex was, you know. He went along with it. He was a pretty good sport, but uh, he did have a massive, massive smile. What do I follow up about Lex? Great question here from late to the nitro party and working a program with Lex Luger shortly before your surgery. Did he do a good job protecting you during your matches? I guess the, the question is, would you have told him ahead of time? Hey man, I'm in a bad way on this side. Help me out. I would have never said that. <clears throat> Number one, um, that's just an ego thing. We all thought we were hard asses back then. Um, You know, it's just the way you were. You just never say anything. But Lex was nothing but very careful. He never hurt me one single time. He was never reckless with me. He never dropped me on my head. Never clotheslined me in the mouth. You know, some of the no-nos, you know, in the business, don't hit me in the teeth. Don't hit me in the balls. Don't drop me on my head where I'm going to be paralyzed. Really just a few rules that we have as, as performers and, you know, and going out and entertaining the audience, but at the same time, making sure we all go home to our families in one piece. Lex took good care of me. It was never an issue. He didn't know anything about the injury I had. And the only telltale sign that you would have had was that I had, more tape on my left hand than I normally would wear. Mm. And it was, I knew I had to have a grip somehow when my, my first three fingers, my thumb and first two fingers wasn't working that night. So I had to work around it. Mark Mazzo writes, uh, what was the crowd heat like in the weeks after the horseman broke Dusty's arm in the parking lot? How did it compare to after you guys broke his leg in the cage and the Omni? Very much the same. We were despised um, because we would just, you know, the very next week we're out there as a group 
and we were just rubbing everybody's nose in it. And Dusty Rhodes was an iconic figure. He was John Wayne of his era. You know, even if you didn't like cowboy movies, you liked John Wayne. Um, Dusty, same way. And it just resonated. And uh, we would get to go out and rub their nose in it, the audience, and rub Dusty's nose in it, you know, for three or four or five or however many weeks he was out. And when he came back, it was a big deal because it was he would let us get heat during that period and just keep reminding the audience that it was five of us that did that. That's back to that burglar thing. Do you come in the front door with your chest out or do you come in the back door in the middle of the night? We came in the back door in the middle of the night. One guy's not going to fight five guys, especially when they got a baseball bat. So... Very simple story, but one that really worked. Interesting question here from Jay. What territories would you have worked for if given the opportunity? Sort of when you look back at your early days of your career, are there any territories that stick out where you think I could have fit in there? Or that could have been fun. Uh, the Florida territory, everybody that ever worked there, you know, loved it. That's part of being young and being in the wrestling business and being based in Tampa and just going to the Florida towns. That would have been awesome. I heard nothing but good things about um, the Oregon territory, Don Owens and how short the trips were and all that. And, you know, once you've been in the business a while and you've driven 3,000 miles for Bill Watts or you've flown 15 legs for the WWF, the aspect of being in a territory where you got eight or 900 miles to drive the entire week and you're really close a, a couple of nights, you know, almost like a, a night off like Pensacola was. Some of those difficult territories really make you want to appreciate the ones that were easier. And that's probably the only ones that I feel like I missed out on something. Um, I was good with, you know, not having to move all the time either. Big Red 603 writes in, I can only remember you having one world title match, and that was against Barry Windham at the SummerSlam, or I'm sorry, Slamboree 1993. Are there any other world title matches that you remember that might be available online or the network somewhere? You are one heck of a criminalist. You dug up the only one that exists. Really? That's your only title shot ever? That's it. Holy it's the only shit. one. Well, everybody go check that out. Slamboree 93, Arn's sole title shot. We got to watch that here on the show sometime. And I, I remember it very, very clearly. It was a big, it was a big moment for me. Um, Barry Windham is a tremendous performer. I was honored to be in the ring with him again in those circumstances. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about, you know, you and the world title. Was that something you ever... You know, thought, I mean, I, I'm just sort of shocked that you only had one title shot ever. And of course things are different these days, you know, title shots are, are more common and it certainly feels like the belt bounces around a lot more. Is that a regret of yours that you never had a serious title program like that? No, no. I had a 15 year career where I got to wrestle probably an average of Oh, during that 15 years, probably 260 days a year. And the wrestling part of it was what I enjoyed more than anything. A lot of wrestlers, if you go back and you look at that list of guys that wrestled on top on a pay-per-view for the world title, is a lot shorter than that list of the ones that didn't. And uh, just to be in the position I was in with the talent that I was in uh, involved with on both sides of the ball kept me so thrilled and so preoccupied and so honored to have been in this business for 15 years. When the words first came out of my mouth as an eight-year-old kid, you could imagine the rhetoric that came in behind it. And then as 15 years, you know, old I was saying I can telling you I can do this and people were going you don't know anybody how are you going to get in that that's a closed club but forget it you're never going to do that um, 
and to have finally got in and to have had the 15-year wrestling career and plus everything that followed a total of 37 years, if we bring ourselves up to date, I never missed the fact that I wasn't in the hunt for the world title. That was meant for someone that had more mass appeal than me, was probably a better wrestler than me, was certainly a higher profile personality than I was, more marketable. When the guy walked out, you just went, wow, that's a star. None of those qualities did I bring to the table, and I was smart enough to know, okay, I get it. That's fine. It would, you know, it was a hell of an honor to wrestle Barry Wyndham once for the world title, and that's what I hang my hat on. The uh, recap from the Observer for that match says Barry Wyndham pinned Arn Anderson in ten minutes and fifty six seconds to retain the NWA title. Very good action, hampered by a lame finish and the fact that they should have allotted these two five more minutes. Wyndham juiced at five minutes from a guardrail shot. A lot of big bumps by both men. Anderson threw down referee Randy Anderson, allowing Wyndham to sneak up from behind and nail him with the title belt and score the pin three and a half stars. And I guess it was, uh, the co headline, uh, Davey boy and big van Vader went on after you guys for the WCW title match. This is that weird era where there's two big belts, but still cool to know that, uh, nice little piece of trivia, your only title shot. That's it. Interesting question about Hulk Hogan here. Based on how the WWF presented itself, what was your reaction when Hulk Hogan came to WCW, considering that he had been the face of the enemy, New York, for so long? In some vein, that had to feel a little weird, right? Yeah, but the boys were not enemies against each other. It was just the office. So unless, you know, someone in that locker room felt that Hogan had duped them in some way or shortchanged them or something had happened on a personal level uh, while they were in the WWF, uh, I'm sure him walking in the door, my mentality was, okay, he's here. Looks like this is a legit deal. Now, how do I get myself in a position to wrestle him? Because I know him dropping that leg on me. When I roll out of the ring that night, I'm better than I was the night before. And getting beat right in the middle because you're in the mix with Hulk Hogan. You're in a angle with Hulk Hogan. That was what I was trying to figure out. Not how I would dodge being a victim of that leg, but how am I going to get in the position to get that leg dropped on me? I love that that's your attitude because I do feel like, you know, from the outside looking in, a traditionalist would say, when his style of wrestling is so much different, it's a much more cartoonish presentation. And, um, you know, it just feels like the old NWA, uh, fans may not have just gravitated to a dungeon of doom style storyline or the Alliance to end Hulkamania. But your point is as a performer, whether it was something you had been doing or not, that's where the money was, or at least for the last decade or so. Right. Hey, I can do ha ha with the best of them. It's just when it's time to get mine, I have to get it the way I would get it. But Hey, I can do, I can do all the goofy stuff that you want to do. If that's what you want to do at that time. Um, but when it's time that this belongs to me, we're going to change the mood a little bit. And that's how you survive. That's how you maintain your character. And that's how you get through a match with a guy that style is totally different from yours. Ronnie L justice writes in, what did Arn think of his match with strike force at WrestleMania five? Any good stories from that match? Of course, I think a lot of our listeners will remember that Rick Martell abandoned his partner in that match and turned heel as a result. It was like the match was almost uh, a backdrop, but still it's a pretty cool deal to be involved in WrestleMania, which was already a brand by 1989. Well, we were a vehicle to get Rick Martel's angle over with his partner. Um, and that was fine because it was WrestleMania. It was in Atlantic city. It was in Donald Trump's arena, had all the trappings, WrestleMania five, and really all we needed was what we got. We got the win off of a pile driver, which looked pretty convincing. And uh, we got the win. And 
they came out of it with their angle and uh, we came out of it with a win at WrestleMania. So I was very satisfied with that. John Riga wants to know who has the best working punch and who has the best shoot punch in wrestling. Of course he means not name Ming. Uh, Bobby Eaton's got a tremendous punch. Uh, a lot of those guys that came through Tennessee, Jerry Lawler, uh, different guys, you had to develop a, a really good punch. He had one. Bobby Eaton had one. Uh, Brad Armstrong had a great punch. Bob Armstrong, definitely a great punch. Uh, who am I missing? Who am I missing? Jerry Lawler had a good one, but you probably didn't do much with him. Nope. Nope. I only wrestled Jerry once, and that was a six-man tag uh, in Memphis, bunkhouse-style match. It was, I think, him and Magnum and Dusty against me, Ole, and Tully. Memphis Coliseum. Um, those are the ones that come to mind right off right off the get-go. Uh, Shawn Michaels, good punch. Um, let's keep it going here. Adam worth writes in, what was your reaction when dusty got to the WWF and you saw him in polka dots for the first time? Did you ever have a conversation with him about these polka dots? Of course, the question is based in the old debate. Was this a rib on dusty? Bruce Pritchard has denied until he's blue in the face that it was not a rib and that, uh, polka dots were just in fashion. Some people who are of that mindset go back and find old pictures of dusty from the early eighties and even the late seventies, where he is in fact wearing polka dot gear. But what say you, did you think the polka dots were a rib on dusty? I never could figure out the polka dots, but I'm sure it was more of a rib than going back to the seventies. Um, you know, when you've been in the heated battle and you've been the booker for a company that really kicked your ass or kicked the other company's ass. And, you know, Jim Crockett was hot. We made it a race. And uh, the WWF at the time made it a race. And it was uh, neck and neck for a long time. And uh, each company was better as a result of it. And Dusty was sitting at the head of that table. So once the company went, you know, into other hands and it came up, to work for the company that was the opposition, you knew they were going to do something. That's just the way it is. It's the way it always is. Uh, someone that high profile, like I said, no one could figure out the dots, the polka dots, but we also knew Dusty would make it work. At that time, I'm sure Dusty was still feeding his family, and that was the most important thing. Um, you could take a lot of, you know, or I know most guys that are in this for the long haul, you could take a lot of abuse to you as long as your family is benefiting from it. And, uh, you know, you can take a lot of stuff on the chin and just go to bed that night mad as hell and the next day everything looks different. So we all knew it was a rib. I couldn't figure out what the tie-in was or to the polka dots, but, uh, yeah, I knew what it was right away. Okay, Arn, let's run one last time out and tell everybody how they can make this the best year ever. I'm talking to you about keeping more of your own money. We are routinely helping our Arn listeners save five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. Now, to be clear, they're not just saving that money one time. They're saving that money each and every month, all because they spent just a couple of minutes at savewithconrad.com. And how's this for starters? No house payments for two months. You won't make your February or your March payment. You're done until April 1st and come April 1st, you're going to have a better mortgage. And I'm talking to you. If you're in a 30 year loan, you're overpaying your single biggest bill and you may not even realize it. Really ask yourself this question. How many payments do I have left on my mortgage? How old am I going to be when I finally pay my house off? Am I going to retire my mortgage or am I going to retire with a mortgage? How are you going to make payments on a retirement income? Let's do what we can to get out of debt while we're still working right now. But what if we could help you pay your house off before your kids go to college? Wouldn't it be nice to not saddle them with student loans? This is worth a couple of minutes. Go to savewithconrad.com. 
Fill out the simple, easy form. You can even get a quick quote right now for free. It's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But if you've got credit card debt, I bet your interest rate is 19, 20%, maybe even higher. You know, you're overpaying. You can get rid of all your credit card debt. Just like that. You get a much better rate. And of course you get a greater tax deduction. See the interest you pay on your mortgage is tax deductible. Whereas the interest you're paying to American express or discover it's not. If you already have the debt, it's up to you how you pay it back. Doesn't it make sense to pay it back at the cheapest rate and the greatest tax deduction? Find out how easy it is to save your family tens of thousands of dollars. And it happens with just a couple of quick clicks at savewithconrad.com. Even credit scores in the 500s will be approved. So don't worry about your credit. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time. And we're licensed in more than 40 states at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Save with Conrad, save with Conrad. Let's talk about, um, Austin idol. John Dean writes in, did you ever have a chance to work with Austin idol? What are your thoughts on him as a performer? You must absolutely have a crystal ball because I just saw him last Wednesday and I talked to him a little bit backstage, but then I talked to him in the airport. You know, he's, he's 70 years old, you know, not a wrinkle under his eye, not a wrinkle anywhere on his face. Still as clear headed and in good shape as a guy 50, but I mean, not a wrinkle anywhere. And we talked, turns out he's living down in Greenville, South Carolina, which is 120 miles from Charlotte. And he just looked, I had a great uh, conversation with him. And uh, he was a big star in uh, Continental Championship Wrestling. And I'm sure Memphis too. And I'm not sure what other territories he worked, but primarily those two. And uh, he was a huge baby face and uh, uh, looked apart, had a great rap, had a great look, and uh, was a big asset to, to that territory, to those territories, Memphis as well. Check it out if you haven't already. I know some of our younger listeners are uh, going back and seeing some of this stuff for the first time, but Austin Idol, for better or worse, is almost like a forgotten character through the history of wrestling, but he shouldn't be. Uh, Rob R writes in describe a typical morning slash day for a Crockett slash NWA TV taping at the old TBS studios. What was your arrival time? What was your taping time? What was the schedule after the tapings? Were there locker rooms? Just give us some insight. We would normally come in the night before, um, on the private planes. Once we had got the company up and running, we had those private planes. We would have a big house show somewhere. It could be St. Louis. Uh, somewhere in the middle of the country. Uh, and then you would fly to Atlanta. We would stay at the Marriott out by the airport. We needed to be at TV about, uh, about eight 30 in the morning to TBS studios. And, uh, you'd have about an hour, hour and a half to get there, get dressed, get your stuff together, figure out what you had on TV that day. And, uh, Start slugging that coffee down because at about 10 till 12 was the taping, something in that in that vein. And at 10 o'clock in the morning to be out there slugging it out for 20 minutes, whether it be for the world television title or the Road Warriors or whoever it may have been, we normally had a match of some magnitude if if not that we would have an enhancement match and we would have a very important promo that we're trying to sell tickets to that night especially probably the following night which would be sunday but we would probably hammer those two markets and uh we would have our match interview to follow grab a shower head back out to the private plane and we would jump on there. They would have food on the plane for us and we would fly to our next destination and God knows where that would have been, any number of places. Uh, and we would wrestle a big house show that night, Saturday night. Uh, we would usually either uh, fly to the next 
Sunday town if it was a double shot day in the afternoon. Uh, after that live uh, house show on Saturday, go ahead and fly to the Sunday afternoon town, and we would wake up there and do two more shows on Sunday. But Saturday was a very full day. Mark writes, what was the most difficult match for you, both physically and mentally? Hmm. We've talked before that your match with uh, Ric Flair on pay-per-view at fall brawl had you so, uh, sort of torn up that you threw up before you wrestled. So that's gotta be somewhere on the list, huh? Yeah. I was just sitting here, you know, the mental aspect, probably that's the only time that I've ran into a, a snag that I really didn't know what was going on internally. Um, couldn't figure out why I was so nervous about that. Um, but I was because it was important and it had been built to be a very personal angle. And it was first time wrestling Rick and, you know, I wrestled as his partner a thousand times, never wrestled him. So it was, you always get nervous on those first no matter what they are. And from a mental aspect, that was probably the most difficult from a physical. There's no doubt. Um, when we were in some of those, um, double cage matches, God almighty with like, uh, the road warriors, dusty and Nikita and, and all those guys. Uh, it was very, very difficult. War games was good Lord. I mean, you did, we almost, we almost bled to death one summer, all of us. Let's talk about, uh, sting. Stephen Flynn writes in, which sting did you like better bleach blonde surfer or the crow? Bleach Bond Surfer. The kids loved him. The audience loved him. He had the character down, looked like a million bucks, looked like a superstar, and uh, became a superstar. Chris Hassan has a great question that we've never touched on before. Do you believe Oli should have been inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame with the rest of the horsemen? If so, did you feel strongly enough to make your opinions known? Well, when we found out right away that when they called Ole and I think told him they would like to put him in, he refused. So that really doesn't give you a lot of <laughs> leverage or <laughs> anywhere to go with that. Um, Is it? I'm not. Go- I'm not. I'm certainly not going to stand up and go in Vince's office and go. No, wait a minute here. I think feel pretty strongly we should make this happen. You know, if the guy, you know, told him, forget it. I'm sure he meant, forget it. Why do you think that all went the way it did? I mean, the, the rumor and innuendo, and you, you probably know better than most allegedly when he's trying to come and and buy the, the Georgia territory and eventually, you know, does a deal with the Briscoes and Ole's not thrilled about that. When McMahon comes to visit, things were very rocky to say the least. And the rumor I believe is as Vince goes to introduce himself to Ole. Uh, he says, fuck you. And, and then he says, well, Oli, uh, I'd like for you to meet my wife. This is Linda. And allegedly Oli says, fuck her too. Did you hear this story where it's he's motherfucking every McMahon in sight? Yeah. And, and you know, I'm not going to say it's not true. I'm not just going to say it's true. Does Oli have the mentality to do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, had that me been me standing there with my wife, one way or the other would had to been in a hell of a fight. You know, that's just the way it is. So, you know, I don't know if it's true or not. It sounds like it possibly could be. I know that it was in an era where Ole still felt like the NWA was going to circle the wagons and fight this guy, that he was the enemy, he being Vince McMahon of WWF. And um, as it turned out, they didn't circle the wagons. And, you know, the Briscoes sold their points and all that, which gave – Vince controlling interest, and we everyone pretty much knows that story. He was on, took the TV show for a while um, before he decided that uh, it was a bad business move, and only got back a hold of it. But but the TV had really took a hit, so uh, there were some pretty serious business allegations that were going on at that time. Funny question here from Tommy Nitro because I don't know what your answer is going to be. Arn 
What's the funniest thing you ever saw Jake Roberts do? I didn't really see Jake do anything funny. (laughs) (laughs) I know that he was scared to death of that snake. You might consider this funny. Uh, For a guy that has a snake phobia to be carrying a 20-foot python around and throw it in the shower and just pray that it stays in there, cut the lights out and cut the water on and just pray that it stays in there. Um, It was pretty funny watching him try to get that thing back in a bag because he uh, truly was, unless he was lying to me, he told me on the QT one time, he said, you know, I'm definitely afraid of snakes. Well, then you are eat up with the dumbass because you got the wrong gimmick. Oh my gosh. Well, we hope you guys are not eat up with the dumbass and you're hitting the subscribe button and you're enjoying what we're doing here. We're going to be back with you next week for a Royal Rumble 2015 episode. I know some of you may have already forgotten what that was, but as a reminder, Roman Reigns wins, but he is booed out of the building and it doesn't matter even if the rock is there to raise his hand. They wanted Daniel Bryan underneath. We've got Brock Lesnar, Seth Rollins, and John Cena in a triple threat. We've got the Bella twins in there with Paige and Natalia. We've got the Usos in there with Damian Mizdow and the Miz. That should be fun. And the newly released Ascension will be in there with the new age outlaws. Maybe one last time, Billy Gunn and road dog, a lot of fun stuff, a lot of meat and meat on the bone that's coming your way next week. So mark your calendars. If you haven't already, it'll be January 21st, just before the five year anniversary of Royal rumble, 2015 from Philadelphia. This is, uh, something that I don't get to do on a lot of my other shows. Talk about a more current product. What's the first thing you think of when you think of that fateful Royal rumble five years ago, the guy sitting in the big chair should have listened to the audience, took a little bit of his own advice and. Listen to the audience. They'll always tell you what the right thing to do is, guys. Well, that should apply to the guy in the big chair, too. We're trying to listen. We want to give you what you want. You're our audience here, and we want you to follow us on social media. On Twitter, it's at The Arn Show. Love to have your interaction there if you've got a question about Royal Rumble 2015. Or stay tuned, because the week after that, we're back to hashtag AskArnAnything. If you missed your question, just submit it next week, and we'll get back to you. We're here on Westwood one every Tuesday morning on your ride to work exclusively on Westwood one with Arn. Hey, and before we go, we need to remind you that Steven singer has you covered this Valentine's day. If you haven't already go to, I hate This is a no brainer. You're going to get the loved one in your life, a real long stem American beauty rose. That's been deeply dipped in pure 24 karat gold. It's going to last forever. So if you're looking for a unique special gift, the one that she'll remember forever. And it's going to last because, well, your love is going to last. It'll never wilt. It'll never die. It comes with your own personalized love note. It comes with a signature gift box. The shipping is free. And by the way, they start at just 59 bucks. What are you waiting for? Go see what I'm talking about right now. You'll be glad you did. It's I hate Steven singer.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.